0: And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. Three, two, one. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've gotta be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. Hello, hello. We are finally back again with a full length episode of Tradcast, a traditional Catholic podcast like no other. cast number 19 is where we're at, and uh, you can count yourself lucky because you are among the .00001% of humanity who actually listens to this podcast. So, welcome to another episode, and let's get started. You've probably noticed that things are getting more and more chaotic in the novel Sordo Church and every time you think that it can't possibly get any worse you are quickly reminded that oh yes it can Francis has been making it very difficult to keep up the facade that John Paul II and Benedict XVI had put up, the facade that no matter how bad things are in the Church, the Pope is in charge, and he's Catholic and conservative, and although he may be weak at times, nevertheless he means to do the right thing, and he is at heart a real stalwart defender of Catholicism. Now, that's always been a mere facade in the Vatican II Church, but until Francis, this facade had some credibility on the surface. It had the appearance of credibility. Well, with Francis, that's over. You may recall that various commentators, journalists, and bloggers, at first, after Francis' election, tried the usual spin of oh, that's not what the Pope really said, or, oh, this must have been a translation error, or, uh, let me tell you what Francis is really up to with all this. And, uh, oh, if only the Pope knew about this scandal, he'd do something about it. Well, you know, it's Francis now. And so, no, the illusion of the pro-life, pro-orthodoxy, liturgical hardliner Pope, that is definitely over with Francis. I think that at this point, the only ones left defending the man are ultra-leftists like Blaise Soupage, Austin Ivory, Massimo Fagioli, and presumably the apologetics comedians at Catholic Answers. Although, even there, you can see that not everyone whom they have on their radio program or who writes with them on occasion is on board with the idea that, that there is no orthodoxy problem with Francis. For example, Steve Ray who is a convert to the Novus Ordo from Protestantism, and has written a book on the papacy, He certainly expressed some opposition to Francis on his website at catholic-convert.com. And then, of course, you've got the Michael Voris Church Disneyland operation, where every open modernist gets opposed, denounced, and exposed as a heretic, except Francis. So, That's a very clever way of dealing with the problem, by the way. You know, you largely just pretend that it's not there. How do people deal with the in-your-face apostasy of Francis? Well, as we predicted, more and more in the Novus Ordo are warming up to the idea that Francis isn't the Pope because Benedict XVI still is. Now, we've been telling you for a while that uh, this is what's going to be the preferred option for those who want what we may want to call a sedevacantism light. Uh, It's so painfully obvious that Jorge Bergoglio isn't a Catholic that they can no longer sustain the idea that the man is or possibly could be the vicar of Christ on earth without making the office of the papacy completely meaningless but since they don't want to touch Sedevacantism with a 10-foot pole, they now have a fairly comfortable alternative to fall back on, or so they think. Saying that Benedict XVI is the Pope just seems a lot less nutty than saying that we haven't had a Pope, or at least not a known Pope, since Pius XII. And since on the surface there is some superficial circumstantial evidence about Benedict's resignation or France's election not having been valid, This is just a very appealing option for those who want to dump Francis but don't want anything to do with Sedevacantism. Which makes me suspect that uh, the whole thing with Benedict's resignation and Francis' election was a setup from the beginning. The resignation with all its weird circumstances and Francis' election with the rumors about the St. Gallen group allegedly trying to predetermine the outcome of the conclave All that is just perfect to create the ultimate chaos in the Vatican II Church and hurt as many souls as possible. Francis can force his ultra-modernist agenda on the whole church while Benedict stays in the background to welcome all those sheep who, in their confusion and disgust with Francis, are looking for a way out. The problem with that is that it's a deception. You see, Benedict XVI is a Vatican II man through and through. Sure, he had some traditional externals, also called sheep's clothing, by the way, but on the inside, it's nothing but Vatican II modernism. The people who now flock to Benedict XVI as their backup, after realizing that Francis cannot be Pope, do not understand the nature or the gravity of the situation we're in. If you'd like to know the facts about who Joseph Ratzinger is and what he believes, check out our website, our topical page on Benedict XVI at novusordowatch.org. We'll include a link to that page in the show notes for this episode at trapcast.org. You will realize that far from the antidote to modernism, Benedict XVI was one of the pioneers of the whole Novus Ordo revolution at Vatican II, and he has never retracted or changed that. For example, consider what he said in 1982, after he had already been appointed head of the Vatican Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith by John Paul II. Here's what he said, presumably in reference to the Society of St. Pius X and Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre. Quote, We are witnesses today of a new integralism that may seem to support what is strictly Catholic, but in reality corrupts it to the core. It produces a passion of suspicions, the animosity of which is far from the spirit of the gospel. There is an obsession with the letter that regards the liturgy of the church as invalid and thus puts itself outside the church. It is forgotten here that the validity of the liturgy depends primarily not on specific words, but on the community of the Church. Under the pretext of Catholicism, the very principle of Catholicism is denied, and to a large extent, custom is substituted for truth. Unquote. That's from his book Principles of Catholic Theology, page 377. It was published in the original German in 1982 and released in English in 1987 by Ignatius Press. In the same book, he also says the following about opposition to Vatican II Quote, We must be on our guard against minimizing these movements. Without a doubt, They represent a sectarian zealotry that is the antithesis of Catholicity. We cannot resist them too firmly, unquote. And you can find that on pages 389 and 390. Anyway, enough of Joseph Ratzinger for now. Again, if you want to find out the truth about the man, go to our Benedict XVI page, linked in the show notes. My guess is that right now his job is to keep those who are fed up with Francis from leaving the Novus Ordo sect and embracing Sedevacantism. Unfortunately, this seems to be working because online you can find more and more people now seriously toying with the idea that Benedict never validly resigned and is the real Pope. I realize that this is more satisfying emotionally than having to say that we've had no known pope since 1958, but unfortunately, it is not based on Catholic teaching or principle. And so, it is chaos all over. The SSPX is divided, the resistance SSPX is divided, EWTN and the Novus Ordo apologists are divided, various so-called cardinals and bishops are divided, the Fatima Center is now divided, the laity are divided all over, and more than ever. So keep that in mind when someone tells you that, ooh, you Sedevacontists are just so divided. Yeah, well, you know, in our case, any division we have is the necessary consequence of the truth of our position. There is no pope. The governing authority in the church is absent as far as we are empirically able to tell. So for that reason, we are left to deal with anything and everything on our own, more or less. That's not a disproof of Sedevacantism, that's just what the very position entails in practice. Disunity or disorder among Sedevacantists goes to show how important the papacy is, and how the Pope is indeed, as Catholic doctrine says, the principle of unity in the Church, the ultimate teacher and legislator for all Christians. Take that away, and you will have disunity and problems. So, Disunity or disorder in of Sedevacantism is natural and makes sense because, as we maintain, there is no pope. But all those novus ordos, conservatives, semi-traditionalists, etc., who acknowledge Francis or Benedict as pope, well, they have a pope in their minds, and they still have chaos. And that is the difference. And it shows that in their religion, the pope really is not the principle of unity is not the supreme monarch and teacher of all catholics in their religion the pope decrees or teaches something and then each of the faithful decides on his own what to do with that let me give you an example to illustrate what i mean so the 1983 novus ordo code of canon law promulgated by john paul ii in 1983 with the full force of his supposed apostolic authority Legislates that baptized non-Catholics, i.e. Orthodox, Protestants, and so forth, can receive Holy Communion, extreme unction, and absolution and confession under certain circumstances without first converting to Catholicism, and not just in danger of death, but also for some other unspecified grave necessity. That is Canon 844, paragraphs 3 and 4 of Novus Ordo Canon Law. So, John Paul II legislates this, and here is how that is received by the various factions of the oh-so-unified Novus Ordo Church. The people at Catholic Answers say, Okay, great. A new law is on the books. We'll take it and defend it. Then, a bit to the right of Catholic Answers, you'll have people saying, hmm, oh, well, this law can't possibly mean what you think it means. It can't mean that Protestants can receive Catholic sacraments. That's not what it means. It can't. Then further to the right of that, you'll have people saying, look, I don't understand this, I, I agree, it looks like it's saying that Catholic non-Catholics can receive the sacraments, but... Um, Look, uh, perhaps it's not right, but uh, what we really need to do here is pray for the Pope. Okay, let's just pray for the Pope. Then to the right of that group, you have people like Christopher Ferreira, the remnant columnist. He would say something like, oh, this is clearly evil and we have to reject it, but it's not really a law because of reasons X, Y, and Z. And then to the right of that, you have people like the late John Venari and Society of St. Pius X saying, nope, this law is evil, we'll resist it, end of story. So that's typically how centrist and right-of-center people in the Novus Ordo sect would respond to an evil law that has been legislated by a supposed true pope. Now, what about those left-of-center, you might wonder? Well, that's easy. Those to the left of Catholic answers would say, Catholic sacraments for Protestants? Uh, Heck, we've been doing that since the 60s. Finally, the Pope's coming around. And even further left than that, you'll find people saying, you guys need to stop with all that magic sacrament stuff. What counts is the spiritual experience. And all of these people, ladies and gentlemen, are part of the same Vatican II church. You can find all of these in the same church. And why is that? Well, at the end of the day, all of these people have one thing in common. They all accept the false popes since 1958 as valid. This is what accepting manifest non-Catholics as popes does to you. The Church's unity of faith and government has been completely destroyed, and there's only a semblance of unity, a semblance that comes from everyone in all of these groups saying that Francis or whoever is Pope, but not necessarily acting like it. Well, with all this chaos, it's not surprising that the folks at the semi-traditionalist newspaper The Remnant sponsor an annual so-called Catholic Identity Conference, and that is held this year from October 27th through the 29th in Weirton, West Virginia. If you look at the schedule for that conference this year, you see that the speakers include the Kazakh bishop Athanasius Schneider, currently the darling of the semi-traditionalists. Then there are also, of course, Michael Matt, the editor of The Remnant, as well as Christopher Ferreira, John Rao. Elizabeth Yore, Ed Penton, and a number of Indult and SSPX priests. Well, I can tell you right now that this identity crisis self-help conference, no matter how well intended, is not going to accomplish anything. And that is for three reasons. First, because their ultimate standard for determining the Catholic identity is not traditional Roman Catholic doctrine but only bits and pieces of that doctrine as determined by their refusal to countenance sedevacantism. They simply do not use Catholic principles. Secondly, because they do not allow the position they take to be determined by the evidence. Rather, they are selective about what evidence they will and won't accept, so as not to allow for the undesirable conclusion of sedevacantism. And third because they're trying to appeal to too broad of an audience as to be able to come to a certain, clear, and truly Catholic conclusion. The remnant is always going to be wishy-washy in its position, in its principles, etc., because they're trying to reach an audience that is too diverse. They're trying to appeal to the big tent, conservative novus ordos, traditionalists, SSPXers, and at this point probably also those who believe Benedict XVI is the Pope, so that the end result is that they will always be tempted to promote a lowest common denominator position. Now, on September 8th, the Remnant released a three-minute promo video clip for their Identity Crisis Conference, and I'd like to say a few things about that. First, the title. It's called Catholics Rising, A major event coming soon. See, there we go already with the lack of principle. They say they are Catholics rising. And if you look at the video, it's clear that they're rising against Francis and basically the whole Vatican II religion. So, what does that mean for Francis and his underlings? Are they not Catholics then? And if not, then why are the remnant people, why are they part of that church? Anyway, I can't play the clip for you because all of the text is just displayed on the screen, so there's, there's no audio, okay, just music. So, I'm going to have to go through this by reading some of the text. So, a few seconds into the clip, a quote of St. Jerome appears that says, quote, I suppose the gates of hell to be the doctrines of heretics by which men are ensnared and drawn into hell, unquote. Now we'll get back to that in a moment. Let me continue describing the video first. Then, a bit later, the following words appear on the screen. What is happening to the Catholic Church? It's becoming a new religion. And then, a little later still, many Catholics have had enough. They want their church back, their schools back, their nuns back, their religious life back, their priests back, their mass, their rosary, their large families— their buildings, their reputation for chastity and service, their faith, their Catholic identity. And then it announces the conference. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let's think about all this for a minute. So the video clip announces that the Catholic identity has been lost or stolen and needs to be recovered, right? They want their church, their faith, their priests, nuns, mass, rosary, and Catholic identity back. They want it all back because they don't currently have it, or at least the Vatican, the heart of the church, the headquarters, doesn't have it anymore. I mean, that is the problem that they're describing, right? Well, with that in mind, let's go back to the first slide of the clip where St. Jerome is quoted as saying that the gates of hell are the doctrines of heretics. So, if the remnant agrees that the gates of hell are the doctrines of heretics, and if the gates of hell cannot prevail against the Holy See, according to the promise given by Christ to St. Peter in Matthew 16, 18, then what follows, given that the Vatican has lost the Catholic identity, the faith, the mass, the priesthood, and so forth? The only possible conclusion is that Francis and his five predecessors are not valid Popes, the Sea of St. Peter is vacant. I mean, they can't have it both ways. On the one hand, say that Rome has lost the Catholic identity, so much so that it's a new religion, and yet also maintain at the same time that the gates of hell have not prevailed. Now, I'm sure that there are some people listening right now who are thinking, oh, wait a minute, Christ said that the gates of hell wouldn't prevail against the church, not that they wouldn't prevail against the Pope or the Holy See. But those who make such an objection have really never read Catholic teaching on the papacy or even the gospel attentively. For example, here's an excerpt from the apostolic letter in Terra Pax of Pope St. Leo IX. Quote, The holy church built upon a rock, that is, Christ, and upon Peter or Cephas, the son of John, who was first called Simon, because by the gates of hell, that is, by the disputations of heretics, which lead the vain to destruction, it would never be overcome. Thus truth itself promises, through whom are true whatsoever things are true, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The same son declares that he obtained the effect of this promise from the father by prayers, by saying to Peter, Simon, behold, Satan hath desire to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not, and thou, being once converted, confirm thy brethren. Therefore, will there be anyone so foolish as to dare to regard his prayer as in any way vain, whose being willing is being able? By the See of the Chief of the Apostles, namely by the Roman Church, through the Saint Peter as well as through his successors, have not the comments of all the heretics been disapproved, rejected, and overcome, and the hearts of the brethren in the faith of Peter, which so far neither has failed nor up to the end will fail, been strengthened? Unquote. That was Pope Saint Leo the Ninth. You can read this for yourself in Denzinger 351. Likewise, the First Vatican Council declared, quote, So this gift of truth and a never-failing faith was divinely conferred upon Peter and his successors in this chair, that they might administer their high duty for the salvation of all, that the entire flock of Christ turned away by them from the poisonous food of error might be nourished on the sustenance of heavenly doctrine, that with the occasion of schism removed, the whole church might be saved as one, and relying on her foundation, might stay firm against the gates of hell." Unquote. That's Vatican I, Dogmatic Constitution, Pastor Eternus, Denzinger 1837. See, this is exactly what I meant when I said earlier that for the semi-traditionalists like the people at the Remnant, their ultimate standard for determining the Catholic identity is not traditional Roman Catholic doctrine, but only bits and pieces of that doctrine as determined by their refusal to countenance say, to Vacantism. The quotes you just heard from Pope Leo IX in Vatican I, do the semi-trads believe that? No, they don't, and that's exactly why we call them semi-traditionalists. Oh, they're traditional, all right, but only until that traditional Catholic doctrine conflicts with their position. And it does very much conflict with their position when it comes to doctrine regarding the papacy, the magisterium, and the church. And this is why this Catholic identity conference is doomed from the start. Sure, people will hear nice talks and enjoy some good food and great company, meet people, have masses, some valid, some not so valid... But at the end of the day, it will do nothing but perpetuate the problem of the Vatican II Church, because all these people refuse to acknowledge the simple truth that people who are manifest non-Catholics cannot be valid Catholic authorities, and you cannot be a Catholic against the Pope. And I know people always like to bring up the argument that, well, well, You don't have the authority to say that Francis isn't Pope. You can't say that because you don't have the authority. Well, the problem with that objection is that it assumes as true something that is false. It assumes that it requires authority to be able to know and point out that Francis cannot be the Pope of the Catholic Church but that isn't true. It simply does not require authority to draw a necessary conclusion from true premises. And that's all we're doing. And look at what happens if you don't do that. Then you either have to say that Francis is a Catholic, which is clearly not in line with the empirical evidence, or you have to deny all sorts of teaching on the papacy like the Semitrats do. Okay, But Neither of these is an option. So the conclusion that Francis isn't Pope is necessary. And because it is necessary, it is entirely certain. And so, unlike what many people mistakenly think, to say that Francis is not the Pope isn't to say that the gates of hell have prevailed. It is the only way, in fact, to say that the gates of hell have not prevailed. Because if a man like that can be the Pope of the Catholic Church— well then, what is the point of the papacy? What makes the papacy special then? What would it mean for the gates of hell to prevail against the church? In the show notes to this Tratcast 19, we're going to link a powerful article that we published in late 2015 entitled, Have the Gates of Hell Prevailed? The Papacy and Sedevacantism. In that article, we argue this matter at length, explaining from the church's own sources what the gates of hell are and in what sense Christ has guaranteed that they will not prevail against his church. Now, some people have taken the very odd stance that right now we cannot say that Francis isn't the pope, but... We will be able to say that once he refuses the formal correction that uh, Cardinal Raymond Burke has threatened him with. For example, this was argued just recently on the blog Romalocutaest.com in the post Benedict is still not Pope, published on September 14th. The author writes, quote, If Francis is an antipope, or a pope who has fallen into formal heresy, this will be revealed in the formal correction process related to the dubia. This would happen at the end of two or three warnings should Francis fail or refuse to 1. profess the faith and practice of the apostolic see, and 2. reject those opinions and interpretations which have contradicted it, even if they had once been his own." Now, this is a very popular idea these days, but it makes no sense whatsoever, and it is not compatible with Catholic teaching on the papacy. Let me explain. First, we already know that Francis is not a Catholic, that he is a pertinacious public heretic. We have over four years of hardcore evidence, and if you don't believe it, check out our topical page on Francis linked in the show notes. It's got the whole laundry list. Second, because we already know of his being a non-Catholic, there is nothing essential that his reaction to the dubia or some formal correction could establish that we don't already know. And third, if you take the position that Francis is the Pope right now, then there is nothing and no one, no authority on earth that could take that pontificate away from him. If you want to argue that some of his underlings can propose a correction to him such that if he refuses it, he forfeits the papacy, then you are saying that these men, these cardinals or whatever, that they are superior to the Pope because only a superior could make a correction binding on France's conscience. But of course, the Pope has no superior. So really, this whole dubia or formal correction business is a gigantic waste of time. But it sure keeps people distracted, doesn't it? Keeps them busy. Now, if you want to argue, as we say to do, that you don't need a legal judgment to know that he's not the Pope, then we agree with that, but then we don't need a formal correction for that either, because it is already plenty evident that the man is not a Catholic. All right, let's change gears for a little bit and uh, look at some recent headlines and Supply some uh, hopefully insightful commentary. For example, on September 16th, we read the following big headline on Canon212.com. Scholar Claudio Pierantoni, Catholics now utterly distrust the papacy. Official persecution of faith within the church has begun. And uh, this headline linked to an article at 1 Peter 5, which we're going to uh, link in the show notes. And there you have it. Accepting Francis as Pope has consequences. It leads to a distrust of the papacy. Not just Francis, of course, but any of the false Vatican II popes. So you have to decide. You either believe that Francis is Pope or you believe in the papacy, it's one or the other. Then another recent headline uh, is from lifesightnews.com, posted on September 15th. Theologian predicts how Pope Francis' teaching could be used to allow contraception. Now, this really struck me as odd, because if there's one teaching that virtually no one in the Vatican II Church adheres to, it's the prohibition against contraception. I mean, even couples who would never think of divorce and remarriage are nevertheless contracepting like there's no tomorrow. Heaven forbid you should have more than two children. I mean, can't have that. And then, of course, you know, there's also that for those few that actually do adhere to Humane Vitae, oftentimes they, you know, practice a quote-unquote natural kind of contraception, the whole NFP thing. But uh, we won't get into that now. So, anyway, I find this concern about Francis possibly scheming to overturn the official Novos Ordo prohibition against contraception rather silly. With Amoris Letizia, Francis has already given away the store. Amor's Letizia basically teaches that when God said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, he really meant, mm, It would be ideal if you didn't commit adultery, but your particular case might be different. Yeah. Check it out. Paragraph 303 of Amor's Letizia. And in fact, if you're interested in that whole topic, uh, listen to our Tratcast episode 13. That was our Amoris Laetitia super show, and it was close to uh, two and a half hours. And uh, for that show, we even released an official transcript, so you can read the show as well as listen to it, and you'll find it all at tradcast.org. But back to the headlines. On September 20th, I came across this headline from Vatican Insider. The Pope, do not listen to the voice of those Who spread hate and divisions. Which I thought was a rather hateful and divisive statement. But anyway, also on September 20th, I saw the following tweet from Vatican journalist Edward Penton Cardinal Sarah, unauthorized liturgical practices strike discordant notes in church and produce a noise which disturbs souls. Well, to which I must respond. Well, it's not just the unauthorized ones, though. It's the authorized ones as well, because the new mass is itself the liturgical abuse. In all of this, it is critical to understand what the real problem is. You need to get the diagnosis right before you can think about what the solution is. Unfortunately, many people, and many of them well-intentioned, that's, that's not the issue, many people fail right there at the first step. They do not correctly identify the nature of the problem. And so, of course, any remedies they try to apply are bound to fail. And the problem gets worse and worse and worse. And that's why if you look at what has happened since Vatican II, everything has progressively gotten worse. Now, some might say, No, it didn't. Things actually got better under Benedict XVI. But that's not true, you see. What Benedict did was he distracted you with some nice externals, especially his Samorum Pontificum, to keep you in the game. And while you were in a delirium over what the remnant was telling you was the great restoration of tradition, Benedict humiliated Christ in a synagogue in Cologne, held another interfaith prayer meeting at Assisi, paid his obeisance to the Jews at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, perpetuated the World Youth Day frenzy, and appointed cardinals like Reinhard Marx, Donald Wuerl, Francesco Palmario, Reiner Welke, and Louis Tegel. So, at best, Benedict was a speed bump on the way to hell. On the lighter side, a headline that appeared on September 6th at uh, HollywoodReporter.com, Jonathan Price to play Pope Francis in Netflix movie. Now, I thought that was odd because uh, they could have just used Jorge Bergoglio. I mean, he's already playing Pope Francis in the real world. Oh, yeah, Anthony Hopkins is going to play Benedict Sixteenth. That's the cannibal from The Silence of the Lambs. All right, it's time for us to take a break here, but uh, before we do, I want to remind you of why you're not novos Ordo anymore. Here is reason number 6042. Sing a new church into being One in faith and love and praise ah! Trackcast. Are you interested in truly Catholic radio programming, one that addresses not only the current crisis in the Church and world, but also discusses literature, art, doctrine, spirituality, and current events? Then tune into member supported Restoration Radio at www.restorationradionetwork.org. Restoration Radio, the network for the thinking Catholic. for EWTN this ain't it trapcast All right, we're back, now with our second segment. You are listening to Tratcast, episode number 19, the traditional Roman Catholic podcast, where we are not more Catholic than the Pope, just more Catholic than the anti-Pope. Thanks for keeping me company. You know, a lot of Novus Ordo cardinals seem to have an awful lot of time on their hands, and one of those, especially now, is the heretical cardinal Gerhard Ludwig Müller, until July 1st, the head of the Congregation for the Destruction of the Faith. Earlier this year, Ignatius Press published a book-length interview with him under the title The Cardinal Müller Report, an exclusive interview on the state of the Church. This is basically modeled after the book that came out over 30 years ago, in 1985, called The Ratzinger Report, in which the then-cardinal Ratzinger talked at length about the state of the Novus Ordo sect, and that was a very popular book back then. Now, I'd like to quote you a few things from that book, The Ratzinger Report, to demonstrate that so much of the stuff we hear in the Novus Ordo conservative camp these days was already said back then, 30 years ago. And really, nothing has changed. So, if you fell for it, then please do not fall for it again when you hear it from various conservative prelates this time around. For example, chapter 2 of the Ratzinger Report is entitled A Council to be Rediscovered. On page 29, we read about how it is not Vatican II and its documents, that are problematic, but the, quote, manifold interpretations, which have led to many abuses in the post-conciliar period, unquote. And see what I mean? Back in 1985, a mere 20 years after Vatican II ended, they were already talking about how the council had to be rediscovered. Well, apparently it had somehow gotten lost in those 20 years, and now it was time to reconnect with the real council. Then, Ratzinger says, it is also our fault if we have at times provided a pretext to view Vatican II as a break and an abandonment of the tradition. There is instead a continuity that allows neither a return to the past nor a flight forward, neither anachronistic longings nor unjustified impatience. Sound familiar, folks? This is the hermeneutic of reform in continuity stuff that Benedict XVI has been preaching. He said it already as far back as 1985, and it is now once again being sold to us as the great solution to the Vatican II problem. Well, then where is it? Where is this continuity? Don't just talk about continuity. Demonstrate it. Do it. Live it. But they can't because it's just Words. These are words that are meant to do nothing other than keep you hanging on, hanging on to their false church in the hope that somehow one day someone will show that it really is not a new religion, but the same religion as before. No break, just continuity. And that's why we're hearing the same stuff from back then, still today, 30 years after the Ratzinger Report and 50 years after Vatican II. Don't let them get away with it again. They fooled us 30 years ago. They can't fool us anymore. And by the way, for those who think that Benedict XVI brought some uh, restoration of tradition, here's what Ratzinger said about restoration in the Ratzinger Report, page 37. Quote, If by restoration is meant a turning back, no restoration of such kind is possible. There is no going back, nor is it possible to go back. And then he talks about how restoration is really the search for a new balance after certain exaggerations and yada, yada, yada. Uh, Oh, and then my personal favorite is what Ratzinger says about the sacred liturgy. Remember, this is from 1985. He says on page 125, quote, It seems that certain abuses associated with the post conciliar years are lessening. It seems to me that a reconciliation is in process, and some people are becoming aware that they went too far and too fast. Unquote. Yeah, so that's what he was saying 30 years ago. And um how's it looking in the Novus Ordo, folks? How's it looking today? Huh? Since 1985, have the so-called liturgical abuses become more widespread or not? I say so-called liturgical abuses because you know that if the Vatican authorities really believed that they are abuses, they would have long done everything in their power to stop them. But this is just words. Every so often you find some novus Ordo big shot talking tough against the novus Ordo liturgical chaos, but as you can see... They've done that for decades and nothing ever changes. It only gets worse on the whole. So as regards the Mueller report that came out earlier this year, I haven't read it, though I've looked through it enough to see that I really don't care to read it. And uh, my advice is just do not fall again for some tough-talking bogus cardinal acting as though if we all just hang in long enough, it'll all be well again again. And we just need more prayer, a correct understanding of Vatican II, and more reverence in the liturgy. Folks, they've been telling us the same thing for over 30 years, and it's been a lie from the very beginning. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. All right, before we get into our last main topic, I'd like to draw your attention to one thing that rarely gets any coverage, and that is the rational proof for the existence of God. A lot of people do not realize that the existence of God can be proved from reason alone, and that is not only a fact, it is also a dogma of the faith. In other words, if you do not believe that God's existence can be proved from reason alone, then you are not a Catholic. The First Vatican Council defined this as a dogma. If anyone shall have said that the one true God, our Creator and our Lord, cannot be known with certitude by those things which have been made by the natural light of human reason, let him be anathema. Unquote. And that's from the Dogmatic Constitution, de Filius, which you can read in Denzinger, 1806. And the reason I want to bring this up is because this is one of the dogmas that are most frequently denied by Novus Ordo modernists. In the Vatican, for example, Archbishop Gergenzwein, the prefect of Francis' household and also the private secretary to Benedict XVI, has recently denied this dogma explicitly. In December of last year, he said in an interview, There is neither proof that God exists, nor is there proof that God does not exist. Faith does not operate based on proof. Faith lives by witnesses and witnessing. We covered this in a blog post uh, at length, which we'll happily link uh, in the show notes so you can read about all of that. This is an important issue because the virtue of faith is defined as the firm adherence of the intellect aided by grace to what God has revealed because he has revealed it, he who can neither lie nor be mistaken. If the existence of God could not be proved from reason, then faith would not be a virtue but idiotic. How can you firmly adhere to something revealed by someone You don't even have any evidence exists. Divine revelation could not exist without there being a God. I mean, duh. But Genswein and the other Novosorto modernists deny this, thus basing belief in God on a subjective experience, you know, that encounter thing. And in this way, they undermine all objectivity of the faith and of doctrine. It's no accident that in 1855, the Vatican uh, issued a decree in which it stated, quote, Reason can prove with certitude the existence of God, the spirituality of the soul, the freedom of man. Faith is posterior to revelation, meaning it comes after it, and hence it cannot be conveniently alleged to prove the existence of God to an atheist or to prove the spirituality and the freedom of the rational soul against a follower of naturalism and fatalism, And that's from Denzinger, 1650. So the possibility of proving God's existence from reason is crucial. And when Pope St. Pius X put together the oath against modernism, he made this one of the very first things to which assent must be given. Quote, First of all, I profess that God, the origin and end of all things, can be known with certainty by the natural light of reason from the created world, that is, from the visible works of creation, as a cause from its effects, and that, therefore, his existence can also be demonstrated, That's the oath against modernism, the motu proprio sacrorum antistitum. And we'll have that linked for you as well. And in 1923, Pope Pius XI wrote in his encyclical Studiorum Ducem, The arguments adduced by St. Thomas Aquinas to prove the existence of God and that God alone is subsisting being itself are still today, as they were in the Middle Ages, the most cogent of all arguments and clearly confirm that dogma of the church which was solemnly proclaimed at the Vatican Council and succinctly expressed by Pius X, That's from paragraph 16 of that encyclical. So, Having said all this, I'd like to direct your attention to a new book recently published by Edward Fieser, who is a philosopher. Now, he's Novus Ordo, but he's pretty reliable as a philosopher because he's a Thomist, and he has done very good work against atheism. His latest book is called Five Proofs of the Existence of God and was published by Ignatius Press, and uh, we're linking that in the show notes. The book description summarizes the work as follows, quote, this book provides a detailed, updated exposition and defense of five of the historically most important, but in recent years largely neglected, philosophical proofs of God's existence—the Aristotelian, the Neoplatonic, the Augustinian, the Thomistic, and the Rationalist. It also offers a thorough treatment of each of the key divine attributes—unity, simplicity, eternity, omnipotence, omniscience, perfect goodness, and so forth, showing that they must be possessed by the God whose existence is demonstrated by the proofs. Finally, it answers at length all of the objections that have been leveled against these proofs. This work provides as ambitious and complete a defense of traditional natural theology as is currently in print. Its aim is to vindicate the view of the greatest philosophers of the past thinkers like Aristotle, Plotinus, Augustine, Aquinas, Leibniz and many others that the existence of God can be established with certainty by way of purely rational arguments. It thereby serves as a refutation both of atheism and of the fideism that gives aid and comfort to atheism. Unquote. So If you're into philosophy or if you're just interested in understanding how to prove the existence of God from reason alone and refute atheism, this is a book you may want to look into because it explains all that and it addresses the most recent challenges to theism. Okay, now let's move on to the last big topic here for today, and that is the article Francis Expands the Fake Magisterium by Christopher Ferreira at The Remnant, published... On September 6th. In that piece, Ferreira blasts Francis for the infernal claptrap that is found in his new interview book by Dominique Walton, entitled Pope Francis, Politics and Society, which was released in French on September 6th and is going to be translated and probably show up in stores here um, before Christmas. Now, As usual, Ferreira is right on the mark with his criticism of the Bergoglian errors. Utterly exhausted by the sheer apostasy and idiocy of this man, he concludes as follows, First of all, obviously, we must keep the faith in spite of Bergoglio's relentless attacks upon it. And please let me interject here for a second. Mr. Ferreira, keeping the faith is great, but the problem for your position is that the faith includes Catholic teaching on the papacy. And this is a minor detail that is always conveniently forgotten. If you want to keep the faith, you must keep what the faith says about the papacy and submission to the Pope. All right? Now Ferreira continues, quote, secondly, we must never for a moment acquiesce by our silence in the man's false teaching, but rather, according to our station, expose it and condemn it at every turn as soldiers of Christ and members of the church militant, lest anyone, especially among our family and friends, be lulled into accepting Bergoglio's errors. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is semi-traditionalist absurdity at its finest. Submission to the Pope, according to Mr. Ferreira, apparently does not include sharing the same religion as the Pope. Far from being the guarantor of the faith, the Pope for the Semitrads is its greatest enemy and poses the greatest threats against it. Now, We have a saint and doctor of the church who addressed this very idea of acknowledging someone as pope while resisting his errors. And that is Saint Robert Bellarmine, a theologian of the 16th and 17th centuries, whom Ferrara himself likes to quote whenever he finds it useful to his position. Let's have a look at what Saint Robert Bellarmine said about this issue. And again, Saint Robert Bellarmine, saint and doctor. Of the church The Pope is the teacher and shepherd of the whole church. Thus the whole church is so bound to hear and follow him that if he would err, the whole church would err. Now our adversaries respond, and notice he says adversaries, our adversaries respond that the church ought to hear him so long as he teaches correctly, for God must be heard more than men. On the other hand, who will judge whether the Pope has taught rightly or not? For it is not for the sheep to judge whether the shepherd wanders off, not even and especially in those matters which are truly doubtful. Nor do Christian sheep have any greater judge or teacher to whom they might have recourse. As we showed above, from the whole Church one can appeal to the Pope, yet from him no one is able to appeal. Therefore, necessarily, the whole church will err if the pontiff would err, St. Robert Bellarmine from his book On the Roman Pontiff, De Romano Pontifice*, book 4, chapter 3. Folks, the idea that the Pope can have his own religion that isn't the Catholic religion, and yet he is still the Pope, is ludicrous. It completely destroys everything the church teaches about the papacy as the sole guarantor of the true faith, the rock which cannot crumble. You know, in a recent interview, Bishop Athanasius Schneider pointed out that the Pope is not the owner of Catholic truth. And yeah, that's very true. But he is its guarantor, okay? Let me quote Schneider for a second. Quote, First of all, we should bear in mind that the Pope is the first servant in the Church. He is the first who has to obey in an exemplary manner all the truths of the unchanging and constant magisterium because he is only an administrator and not an owner of the Catholic truths which he has received from all his predecessors. The Pope must never himself behave towards the constantly transmitted truths and the discipline by referring to them as if he were an absolute monarch, saying, I am the church, analogously to the French King Louis XIV, l'etat c'est moi, I am the state, Actually, that is exactly what the Pope is. The Pope is the church more than anyone else could be said to be the church because the Pope enjoys the plenitude of the apostolic authority given by Christ. All authority in the church ultimately flows from the Pope. Even if all our books, all our Denzingers and dogmatic manuals and sacred scripture and conciliar documents and all of that, if all of that vanished, the church would not be without the true doctrine because she carries it within herself. And if there is one person who could justly be said to contain all of that in him, it is the Pope. And that is why Pope the IX said, I am tradition. Well, in case you're not familiar with that anecdote, he said that during the First Vatican Council to Cardinal Filippo Gidi, who had said that bishops are witnesses of tradition. Let me quote from Dom Cuthbert Butler's The Vatican Council published in 1962 by the Newman Press, page 355, quote, Witnesses of tradition, said Pius, there's only one, that's me, unquote. And sometimes this is rendered a bit differently, that he said, Tradizione, tradizione son io. Tradition, I am tradition, Now, some, you know, cast doubt on whether he actually said that, but it makes perfect sense because it is true. If you read the Catholic teaching on the papacy, that is what follows. The Pope is tradition, so to speak. The source given for this anecdote is the private journal of Bishop Felix Dupinloop, loup who attended the council. Anyway, sorry I got off on a tangent here. Let's return now to Chris Ferreira's piece against France's fake magisterium. Quote, He must be confronted day in and day out by the Orthodox Catholics he so clearly despises and seeks to ostracize with his cheap demagoguery, even to the point of effectively assisting the secular state he absurdly deems healthy in its ever-widening witch hunt for hate speech and hate groups. Thirdly, we ought to consider the real possibility that with this pope we have entered into uncharted territory in the history of the papacy. The chair of Peter is occupied by a man who appears to have been valiantly elected to the papacy, is universally recognized as a successor of Peter, and yet de facto is a kind of antipope in terms of his words and deeds. Worse, Not even the literal antipopes of the past have uttered the falsehoods and inanities that flow from Bergoglio like a river from its source, unquote. Ah, a kind of antipope. In terms of his words and deeds, yeah. (laughs) Just not in terms of his person, huh? I guess it's just words and deeds floating around there. Ferreira is wanting to have it both ways. He wants to insinuate that Francis is an anti pope, but not actually say it. And he needs plausible deniability, too, you know. I didn't say he was an anti pope. Some time ago, Ferreira called him an anti Catholic pope and an undertaker pope. And now he's moved on to de facto anti pope in his words and deeds. <laughs> Look, just say. He's an antipope already, okay? For goodness sakes. Ferreira continues, The astounding spectacle should fill us with dread over the threat it poses to the church, to our children, to countless other souls, and to the world at large. It should impel us to pray for the church's deliverance from this pontificate, but also to pray for Francis himself, despite the legitimate outrage he provokes and the emotional response to his annex that rises in the flesh. It should not, however, be an occasion for gleeful gloating in the manner of the sedevacantist commentators who delight in what they view as the ultimate confirmation of their thesis that we have had no legitimate pope since Pius XII." Ferrera just cannot bear the thought that maybe Sedevacanus have been right all along. And as far as gloating goes, if you look at the content that The Remnant has put out about Francis in the last few years, isn't it full of gloating? I mean, if you want to call it that. Isn't it full of them, you know, happily telling others that their position has been vindicated vis-à-vis the position of the neo-Catholics like Tim Staples and Carl Keating and Jimmy Aiken and Jeffrey Myrus and these people? Now, I've pointed out in a tradcast before that when the semitrads are ready to convert to Sedevacantism, there will not be a gloatfest on Novus Ordo watch about it. We will simply welcome them and offer thanks to God that more souls have escaped the snares of Francis. But I think that what's happening here is that Mr. Ferreira simply dreads the thought that Sedevacantism... Have been right all along, and he must pull out all the stops he can to avoid saying so. He concludes as follows: quote, What we are now witnessing is something other than mere Satavacantism. What exactly it is, only history will tell. But it is certainly something the church has never seen before. Knowing this, We should be appropriately forewarned of what would appear at this point to be a dramatic heavenly resolution of the absolutely unprecedented Bergoglian debacle, unquote. Now, this is just rich. See, Ferreira only knows one thing. Sedevacanists are wrong. Sedevacanism is false. Whether it's too much or too little in the right direction, he's not sure about. He just knows Sedevacanism is false. So now he pushes the line that, oh, well, Sedevacantism can't be it because with all that's been going on, uh, mere Sedevacantism could never be the right answer. (laughs) We poor Sedevacantists just can't win here. I mean, according to Ferreira, we're wrong even when we're right. And now we're wrong because we propose a mere Sedevacantism? Huh? I mean, look, he's trying to save face, is all this is. Unfortunately, he's doing it to the detriment of souls, because who among Ferrera followers actually believes in the papacy as taught by the Catholic Church? In any case, what is Ferrera proposing now? A hyper vacantism? You know, I'm not sure what the point of his argument is here, because first of all, what, what even is a mere vacantism? At the end of the day, no matter how you slice it, Francis isn't the Pope, and neither are his five predecessors of infelicitous memory. Now, whether you hold the Seda privationist position, as Bishop Donald Sanborn does, or whether you believe that Cardinal Siri was elected Pope in 1958, or, or that there is currently a true Pope in hiding, whatever, none of that negates the known fact that Francis is not the Pope and that the Vatican II sect is not the Catholic Church. I really don't care if you want to call it a, a mere set of or set of on steroids or whatever. It's at least the correct diagnosis and a first step towards making sense of this mess. Look, this, this fake magisterium and, and great facade thesis that Ferrer likes to push, none of that stuff is going to work. So everything in the new church is fake except the Pope? Uh, Really? I mean, somehow he's the real deal? It's just that all the rest is fake? Is a facade? So we have, what, fake magisterium, fake canon law, fake saints, fake mass, fake rosary. Well, maybe it's all fake because there is a fake pope. I mean, wouldn't that at least be an answer that squares with reason and also with Catholic doctrine on the papacy? Let me leave you here with one final quote from Pope Pius XI, encyclical Costi Canubi from 1930, in which he rebukes those who would sift the magisterium for what they find acceptable and dump the rest, which is exactly what the semi-traditionalists do with the Novus Ordo magisterium. Quote, Wherefore, let the faithful also be on their guard against the overrated independence of private judgment and that false autonomy of human reason. For it is quite foreign to everyone bearing the name of a Christian to trust his own mental powers with such pride as to agree only with those things which he can examine from their inner nature, and to imagine that the church sent by God to teach and guide all nations is not conversant with present affairs and circumstances or even that they must obey only in those matters which she has decreed by solemn definition, as though her other decisions might be presumed to be false or putting forward insufficient motive for truth and honesty. Quite to the contrary... A characteristic of all true followers of Christ, lettered or unlettered, is to suffer themselves to be guided and led in all things that touch upon faith or morals by the Holy Church of God through its supreme pastor, the Roman pontiff, who is himself guided by Jesus Christ our Lord. Unquote. Ladies and gentlemen, there can be a false pope illicitly sitting in the chair of Peter, someone claiming to be Pope who isn't. That is possible. Catholic teaching does not rule that out. But there cannot be a true Pope who doesn't even adhere to the Catholic religion. There cannot be a true Pope and yet a fake magisterium. And with this, we'll call it a day. Thank you very much for listening so patiently, and please spread the word. And maybe you can even help us out with our expenses a little by making a tax-deductible contribution at novusordowatch.org slash donate. Until next time, may God bless you.